Jimmy Murphy, Pierre Maguire here for another edition of the Eye Test on the Sick Podcast Network. Turn up your volume because you're about to listen to the Sick Podcast. The Eye Test with Pierre Maguire and Jimmy Murphy. The Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avalanche. And after 22 years, the sickest NHL podcast. It's going to be sick. Hey, Jimmy Murphy, Pierre Maguire back here on the eye test. Another week under our belt. What a week that was, Pierre. Uh, I mean, we're still hearing the uh, the compliments and, and the feedback and just how many people really connected with that episode we did with Scotty Bowman and then also with Greg Carville as well. So, you know, just just a wonderful week we had there. But, yeah, you, you can't. Like I said, Pierre, I mean, I don't know. We can only go down after Scotty, but no, we'll keep going up. But man, that was that was something. And to see the the stuff that people are saying, how it took them to different places in their lives, uh, means a lot to us. So from Pierre and I, we, we want to thank you as well. We we loved every second of it too. I can't say much more than that, Jimmy, except to say um I'm still marveling at the way Scotty handled that entire interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell you, the response from college coaches and professional coaches has been overwhelming. I've had a couple coaches, NHL guys, call me up and say, can you forward me that interview? Because I've heard about it. So I'm like, yeah, sure, 100%. So that's uh, what I was actually doing the last little while. It's been kind of neat. Jimmy, I, I, just before we get started here, I wore one thing for you today. <laughs> that's a little inside hockey so my son ryan went to the belmont hill school in boston jimmy is went to the chief rival saint sebastian's both of them have produced nhl players hobie baker winners legendary people in the game and um jimmy i just wore that for you today just i, I appreciate you I'll, i might have to dig up my old arrows uh paraphernalia let's <laughs> see and, we for our, get- and for our good buddy, Billy Burke, the, the headmaster or the oh, former yeah. headmaster at St. Sebastian's. Yeah. Congratulations to Bill Burke on an amazing career. I know he's, you know, he's on his way out to retirement and uh, he did so much for that school and for the hockey program and the whole sports program. So uh big shout out to him. And, and, you know, Pierre, before we go on here too, uh people may notice my background here. I don't know if you ever heard of the Pogues, Pierre. I, Very, I, have. I know the lead singer passed yeah, on. Yep. He did. Yeah. And it was, uh he was, to me, you know, I have like three musicians uh, that really meant a lot to me in my life would be Johnny Cash, Bob Marley and Shane McGowan of the Pogues. And um, he was just he was something, Pierre. If you ever get a chance, just just Google the songs and read the lyrics because people see him. He was this guy, no teeth. He looked like a mess, you know, and he loved to drink his Jameson and it was part of his shit. But, you know when you come down or you look at the guy and then you read his lyrics, you're like, wait a minute, this guy, it, it was just beautiful, beautiful lyrics. And what I love too, Pierre is I grew up obviously at Murphy growing up in an Irish American family in Boston. My dad was really into the old traditional folklore, the folk music for the Irish. And he introduced me to that and would sing me so many songs, Pierre, uh, as a kid, uh, and then really got had that influence on me. So then, you know, I discovered the Pogues late in high school, early college years, and it was something. And I, I, I brought it back to him, and I said, "Dad, have you ever heard of these guys?" And he said, "Well, you know, I have, but that guy looks a little nuts to me." I said, "Dad, <laughs> I'm telling you, you'll appreciate him. He really pays homage to the history of Irish traditional music, and he does a great cover." And we actually just spoke about this. I was on the Jeff Merrick show earlier today. 
the song Waltz and Matilda, which is a, you know, very, very depressing almost, or sad, but really moving ballad. Uh, and I played it for him, Pierre, and, and it was one of the few times I saw my dad cry, brought him to tears as a Vietnam vet, and he heard that, and that became his favorite version. So uh, rest in peace and Godspeed to Shane McGowan, and uh, let's move on here. And Pierre, we've got a great show today. We're going we're gonna to get right into it here, talk about some NHL goaltending and the differences between the goaltending uh, now and when the cap er uh, pre-cap error and sort of how the cap error brought in a, a, a changing in that. But also after that, really psyched to talk to Chuck Caton, uh, longtime Hartford Whalers, Carolina Hurricanes, play-by-play man, a Hall of Famer. Uh, really looking forward to talking to him and getting some stories about you two on the road. So mm. we'll get him on shortly. But let's talk, Pierre. I, I read a call and I sent it to you from the great Larry Burks, another Hall of Famer. Yep. Uh, and he just wrote about, you know, what has become of NHL goaltending right now. You look at the save percentages and the average across the league. I think he said it was something like 902 right now. And, uh, you know, goaltending's really down and the quality is down. And, you know, as you and I were prepping for the show, uh, you, you made some great points there saying the goaltending isn't really down. It's just the, the rules changed when we brought in uh, the salary cap and the, you know, the 2005 season, 0506 season, there was a lot of different things that were that were catered to the shooter and really made to make it very difficult to goaltending because they wanted scoring. So why don't you elaborate on that a little for our viewers? Well, first of all, I just want to compliment Larry on that column because I think he's thinking outside the box. He's saying stuff that maybe a lot of people are thinking, but they don't want to say. That's just the hockey nature. That's just how it works in hockey. But what I'm going to say is going to defend the goaltenders union in particular because um, I think I was part of what helped change it and cause problems for the goalies. Number one, the two-line pass came out. And forever and ever, I was talking about that on national TV in Canada and the United States. And I remember one hockey executive saying to me, this better work because if it doesn't, your career's over. <laughs> um, and he was serious. And you know what? It actually worked out pretty well. So I was happy about that. Yeah. Uh, the trapezoid came out so goalies couldn't handle the puck. And because of that, it led to more forechecking. Zero tolerance and obstruction. Because there's zero tolerance and obstruction, more forechecking, more opportunity to create odd man rushes, more opportunity to get people engaged in the cycle. Um, there was more time in the slot area, more time in the upper slot area because you couldn't use your stick as a defensive weapon into the hip of a player. So what happens when you have all that extra time and space? You can elevate the puck. So we see more pucks going into the top of the net than ever before. Jimmy, the advancements of science, carbon fiber sticks, every oh. single year these sticks get better and better and better. And it's not just the shafts, it's the blades as well. So guys are able to shoot with amazing velocity and accuracy because of the advances we've seen in technology and science. So that's another thing. Skill coaches. Back in the day, and I'm trust me, this is 34 years around the NHL, there were no skill development coaches. And if there were, they weren't teaching the skills that these guys have today. Because if yeah. they were, we would have seen them a long time ago. This The skill development stuff's only in the last 12 to 15 years. Um, slot pressure. Used to be if you went into the slot, you better pay a price. I mean, think about the late Clark Gillies. Think about Mike Bossy. All these guys, Steve Shutt, that went to the slot, and they used to get cross-checked in the back. You can't cross-check anymore. So guys now can post up. And what's the line that everybody uses, Jimmy? Take the goalie's eyes away. 
How many times did you see that in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s? Very yeah. seldom because guys wouldn't stand there. They would get crushed. Shot velocity. We've never seen velocity on shots like this because of science, the development of skills, and more than anything, guys off ice training is so good. They're shooting the puck with more velocity than ever before. And finally, this is my last one, video analysis. Jimmy, it's never been better. When I was coaching in the league, we used to do – there were no computers. We did all the tapes reel to reel. You'd get really strong shoulders, trust me, working with the yeah. VCR side to side. So you put it all together. Yes, the numbers are bad for the goalies, but just, again, so the listeners and the viewers at home know, I presented to Jimmy before we came on. I said, Jimmy, go look at the goalie stats from 2003 and 2004, and then look at the goalie stats from this year. And, Jimmy, what did you see? <laughs> A drastic difference. Like, huge, I mean, huge difference. Not, not just, you know, slight differences or adjustments, like night and day, Pierre. It was it, – it's amazing. I look at, like, Mika Kiprasov that season – uh, or Dwayne Rolison, you know, two goalies who had very successful seasons. And then you look now, you know, even like Linus Almark and Jeremy Swayman, what they're doing right now, that's very rare. Their their stats are rare. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the more common, you know, the, the save percentages are, are lower. So it, I get it. I agree with you, Pierre. I think it's kind of unfair to judge the goalies and, and, and better to really look at what the rule changes and everything you just discussed did to goaltending. And, and, you know, look, Pierre, one thing, too, and we've, we've got Chuck now, so we're going to continue this. Let's park this for Wednesday. I want to continue it. But one thing I do want to get into, and we can think about it in the next two days, is the effect that you brought up studying, you brought up analytics, all the effect that analytics maybe has on scouting goalies. Mm -hmm. And I, when I watch goalies sometimes, it, it just kind of reminds me of pitchers in baseball and the way coaches handle goalies and the way – managers handle pitchers now you know you see in baseball sometimes Pierre. there's guys pitching no hitters in the fifth inning sixth inning and they're getting pulled for somebody in the bullpen because the analytics are telling the manager to do that not the eye test so let's let's save that before we get the, one more thing before chuck comes on because he'll give us time don't worry Chuck's yeah, yeah. not afraid to talk um 12 years in a row Marty Brodeur had 67 or more starts, 12 years in a row. But here's what I want to throw at you. Here are some of the coaches he played for. Jacques Lemaire, Larry Robinson, mm -hmm. the late great Pat Burns. All three of those men are Hall of Famers. The New Jersey Devils created the dead puck era. That's one of the reasons why he was able to play 12 years or more, 67 great starts. Year. Last year, two goalies played 64, had 64 starts. One was UC Saros in Nashville, and the other one was Connor Hellebuck. That's it. That was last year. Yeah. They didn't do it 12 years in a row. So because of the new rules, everything's changed, and it's put a lot more duress on the goalies, Jimmy, a lot more duress. I'm with you. Well, let's bring on our guest right now, and I'm really psyched to talk to him. I'm sure you guys are going to have some great uh, recollections and memories to share here. The Hall of Fame broadcaster, Chuck Caton, joining us here on the iTest on the Sick Podcast Network. Chuck, how you doing? I'm sick. No, oh, not really. No. Hey, I've been battling it too, man. It's the first time no, I've since I'm Thursday. just enjoying the uh, conversation because I had so many great years uh, oh. knowing our good friend, Mr. McGuire. Uh, and it all started back uh, in 19, well, before 92, actually. He was Scotty Bowman's assistant in Pittsburgh. I walked into the Penguin office one day. As you know, Bowman took over from Bob Johnson. 
uh, who was a good friend of mine as well when I used to do Wisconsin hockey. And uh, I saw this guy walking. He was talking about his uh, VCRs and tapes. He was holding a bunch of tapes going to the back office in Scotty's office at, at the Igloo. And I said, who the hell is this guy? And he told me, oh, yeah. And he gave me the whole you know, chin and the whole thing. And he told me who Pierre was. And I think I briefly met him then. And then little did I know that about a year later, uh, we would uh, be together in Hartford in 1992. And I saw him in the parking lot of... Uh, uh, Glastonbury Hills Country Club, uh, where we had the Whalers yeah. outing, and, and a friendship started from them. So good to see both of you. Good to be with you, Jimmy. Yeah, for sure. Now, before we get going here, and I'll, I'll dish it to Pierre in a sec, I want to know, what was he like on the road? What was it like traveling with Pierre? Well, it was always uh, intensity in, in every level, whether it was on the ice or off the ice. Let's put it that way. He was yeah. uh, a great guy to travel with because uh, – one of the things that uh, when you when you while away the hours on the road and you have those uh, seven or eight day road trips and certainly in Hartford we didn't have as many as uh, Western teams do today, but uh, we always talked hockey and we always watched hockey and I'll never forget he was one of the first people in uh, Connecticut when he was coaching to have a satellite dish in his backyard in Granby, Connecticut, and I never had. Uh, anything like that. Uh, first of all, you know, they, they pay coaches pretty well. So he had that satellite dish and I had to go to his <laughs> house all the time to watch uh, hockey. And I, I did so lovingly because uh, we would spend a lot of time watching games on the old dish. And uh, and uh, you talk about technology. I heard Pierre talking about it with the sticks and the way the game is played today. Yeah. The same thing with the video. And uh, wow. it was always great to be with Pierre, uh, whether it was a home or road, uh, a consummate hockey man. Jimmy, before I get going, I'd like Chuck to hear a piece of tape. They have come up and have risen from the hockey morgue and have won this Stanley Cup of 06 with a tremendously large team effort. And as they are mobbing each other, as I said earlier, John, 393 days of frustration and on the 9394th day of NHL existence the Carolina Hurricanes the Whaler organization till 97 have won the Stanley Cup and my friend I am so happy you are at my side to see it so I have to tell you this, I was doing that game with the great Doc Emmerich and John Davidson. And as soon as it was over, we were walking out into the parking lot. I was after game seven, Edmonton versus Carolina. I had people crying coming up to me because they had heard Chuck's call. And oh. I, I heard that from so many people. And later that summer, I remember uh, driving through New England, and I stopped to see some cousins in Hartford, and they were still talking about Chuck's call, even though the Whalers were no longer in Hartford. They'd yeah. been gone for a while. <laughs> it just shows you the power of when you have a passionate, smart hockey man like our friend Chuck Caton is. And, Chuck, thank you for what you said before. It's all true, by the way. We had so much fun together. Jimmy, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, we don't go to the every day. Either he would pick me up or I'd pick him up when we go to the airport together. It must have been boring if you sat in the back seat because all we talked about were the games from the night before. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, just terrific. I mean, uh, thank you for those words because uh, I did want to pay tribute, and I was always wondering, 
A, the way that series went with Edmonton, whether the Hurricanes would win the Stanley Cup mm. after what happened with games five and six. Yeah. But, uh, but I was trying to tie in uh, an allegiance, uh, kind of a, a, a tip of the hat to the fans in Hartford for the 18 NHL years. And of course, the countless years prior to that, three or four in a World Hockey Association that people in Hartford got to watch Major League Hockey. And I wanted to do something. So I actually went back and counted the number of days since October 11th, 1979. So... Um, that was the only preparation I did on that call. So thank you. I appreciate you know, it. It's a spectacular call. And it's one for the ages. And just for our listeners out there, especially the younger ones, Chuck's in the Hockey Hall of Fame for a reason. Um, his voice, his pipes are amazing. Passion for the sport, overwhelming. But knowledge, intricate knowledge of the game would yep. blow you away if you spent a lot of time with Chuck. So Chuck, because of that, and you talked about the longevity of the Whalers in the community of Hartford, you had a chance to spend time with some pretty significant hockey players over time. And so I'm going to ask you some names. Just give us a quick scouting report and your relationship with those players. Gordie Howe. Gordie Howe. Uh, what can you say any more than your childhood idol? A guy that I never thought I would know uh, from an intimate basis with his family and become a, a, such a friend of uh, his that I actually uh, – Helped carry out the casket at Joe Lewis Arena that day when Mark Hall uh, Howe was uh, bawling like a baby with his dad passing away. I never thought I'd ever get that close. We had kind of a kindred, kindred spirit being both from Detroit or been playing all those years in Detroit and me being a Detroit native. Um, a dream come true. Just a wonderful human being who I sorely miss. And I know a lot of people in the hockey community do as well. One of the best books you'll ever read is by Gordy's son, the Dr. Howe. And it's nine life lessons my father gave me. It's an amazing book. I love it. I cherish it to this day. And there's sometimes that I go back and read it because there are so many good life lessons. Nine life life lessons I learned from my father. Jimmy Roberts. Jimmy Roberts. Uh, again, uh, a guy that uh, you could have a lot of fun with, but it was serious when uh, it, it came so. The thing I remember most about Jimmy was his practices without pucks where he would have players take line rushes and uh, visualize and conceptualize what they were going to do with the puck. And players thought he was crazy at the beginning for doing that. I also remember the uh, hat and the gloves in tribute uh, to, of course, the great late Toe Blake. Uh, Toe Blake. Absolutely. Yep. He, uh, I guess Toe used to wear those gloves and he had uh, the fingers worn out on him. Jimmy did, but it didn't matter. Uh, the great uh, cigar moments that we had together, because both of us uh, were cigar, I don't know if we could call ourselves aficionados, but we at least uh, had them, uh, like I do with my good friend Nate Greenberg from time to time when I see him in yeah. Boston. And and But I, I again, Jimmy Roberts was uh, a winner, uh, and I think that's the biggest compliment, and it just broke my heart the day I walked in, and I remember we, on that October day, I walked in, and I was told uh, at our morning skate that Jimmy had passed away. And uh, I just it just broke me right up. He was a very, very good friend. Robert Marvin Hull, otherwise known as Bobby Hull. Well, uh, the, he, you know, he didn't spend a lot of time with us, but it was very significant uh, the time he did spend. And I've got a great story when he came to Hartford, which was on Leap Day 1980. He was introduced to the crowd when we played the St. Louis Blues at the Hartford Civic Center. He's waving to everybody, February 29th, 
And uh, then about a week later, he scored one of his patented goals on Don Edwards in Buffalo. He wound up, fired from the blue line, uh, knocked Edwards backward, and it was reminiscent of my time as a kid because I was kind of rebellious. I lived in Detroit, loved Gordie Howe, but I was a big Chicago Blackhawk fan back then. (laughs) And so Bobby Hull meant a lot to me to meet him and to be up close with him. And the key story with him was when he came to town, our uh, late uh, assistant general manager, Bob Crocker, was uh, entrusted with uh, getting him his driver's license in Wethersfield, Connecticut at the DOT. And I happened to uh, need one as well because we just had moved from Wisconsin and it took me a few months to get a license. I think statute of limitations, I'm not going to get into trouble. But, uh, so we're, uh, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old uh, and Bobby Hall's with us in the car with Bob Crocker and he helps my wife out. Well, carrying Chuck, who's now 44 now, up the stairs at uh, the second floor of the DOT in Wethersfield, Connecticut, while we get our, and that was the kind of gentleman he was. We also had a Bobby Hull night in Winnipeg, where the Whalers were the uh, opposition, where they retired his number there. Um, And and he was just a a gracious human being and a, a great guy to have for that little time. And, you know, I used to do the plane tickets back in those days, too. And I remember a game in Washington just before he ended up leaving our team for personal reasons. Uh, I dropped all the plane tickets, uh, the boarding passes on the floor in Washington. I was so nervous because I just made it to the plane before the bus got there. (laughs) And so he's helping me pick them all up. I don't know. I remember crazy things like that. And Bobby was just a great gentleman to me. The great Dave Keon. Well, I mean, what can you say about this guy? Uh, uh, Again, had a great chance uh, to visit with him at uh, uh, last last month's Hall of Fame uh, ceremonies. It was great to see him come back to Toronto. Um, The biggest thing with him was uh, the consummate professional. And, you know, I talk about those boarding passes that I used to have to hand out my first couple of years when we traveled commercial. Um, He would always want uh, the window seat. Gordie Howe would always get an aisle. Gaby Keon would get a window seat, and um, I was told before I actually got to meet him my first year at training camp that he was very, very abrasive. He was tough to get to know. So he was sitting there one day, and I'm ready to give boarding passes out to him. We were going to Atlanta at the time for a preseason game. So it was the first encounter that I had with Dave, and I'm, I know he wanted his window seat, so I hear him doing trivia uh, questions to Al Sims, a defenseman at the time. Bobby Orr's old partner, Al There you go. And uh, so Al and Davey are going back and forth giving each other trivia questions, and I'm uh, kind of eavesdropping and ready to give uh, Keon and Sims their boarding passes. So I said, I've got a trivia question for you, Dave. And he looks at me like, you know, what are you talking about, rookie? And uh, I said, did you know that Monty Hall was uh, the voice of the New York Rangers at one time from Let's Make a Deal? And he goes, no, he wasn't. I said, yeah, there's your trivia. You can use that. At- I don't oh. think so. So about a week later, he comes back to me and he shakes my hand and says, I looked it up. You were right. Oh, good. I think he did 50 games for the Rangers in 1955. Oh. Well, you know, obviously well, way before Marv Albert. But uh, uh, and and uh, uh, the other guy, uh, who am I thinking of? Bud uh, something. Anyway. But he did do hockey, and uh, Davey Keon, and we became great friends after that. I guess I had my credibility unquestioned once I – There you go. 
because he was one of those guys who was tough to get to know at first, but uh, I love him as a friend, and I always uh, give him a call from time to time. So we've talked about a lot of ho former hockey players and late hockey players. What about the tandem of Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin? Oh, those two guys, they were my idols. I mean, I had several growing up in Detroit, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in Detroit because we used to get – uh, CKLW television out of Windsor, and and I was able to watch Hockey Night in Canada ever since I can remember. And, of course, it started with Foster Hewitt, and we'd always get the Leaf games nine times out of ten, but that one special time, usually every three or four months, the Leafs didn't play on a Saturday night, and we would get the Montreal Canadian games. And Danny Gall and I was uh, opened up to a whole new world of broadcasting listening to Danny Gallivan. And he was actually my favorite, and for many, many reasons, one of which was his uh, ability to create excitement on a telecast, which we don't see a lot of today with a lot of the broadcasters. They just name names, and they don't give you that mm -hmm. um, kind of passion that I think the game needs on TV as well. And uh, the next thing was working with Dick seamlessly. I know you talked to Dick. And he would say, well, I was just Danny, you know, I would just carry his bags because he would just do promos and stuff. He wasn't a traditional color man in that sense that we know today because he wasn't adding a lot. He was reading promos, but they meshed so well together. Dick's voice, unmistakable. Uh, but uh, the Danny Gallivan story for me that uh, that will still, I'll never forget, was the first time I walked into the Montreal Forum. We had a game on December 1st, 79. You can look it up. We had a 4-4 tie. Guy Lafleur yes. gets tripped by Ricky Lee with two minutes left, no overtime. So now the Whalers have to kill a penalty off. Well, anyway, the morning skate of that first time I ever walked into the forum, the first person I ran into was Bob Ganey. And he knew who I was. And I thought, well, how does he know who I am? Well, he used to listen to games. You could get WTIC, our station, up in Montreal very well. And then the next guy I ran into, who got there earlier than I did, was the great Danny Gallivan. Mm -hmm. And he, I went up, you know, very nervous to introduce myself. And he goes, young man, I think you're a very good announcer. And he said that to me. And it, what do you think how it made me feel? I, I couldn't speak after that. And that was my first encounter meeting Danny Gallivan, even though I'd seen him like as a kid at Olympia, you know, when Montreal would play Sunday night hockey games against the Red Wings. But I was so afraid to go up and talk to him, you know, when I was 14, 15 years old. And here I was at the age of 26 uh, meeting my idol and another terrific individual. Uh, his use of the language was uh, spectacular. Uh, just so, so great. Jimmy, I used to be out scouting a lot, especially when I was a college coach. And one of the great parts about the Hartford Whalers was they had an amazing range with their radio station. So mm -hmm. even before I met Chuck, I'd be in Western New York or I'd be in Montreal driving to Toronto. I could always pick up WTIC, right, Chuck? I think it was WTIC. Exactly, 1080 on your dial. Yeah. And it went really north and northeast very well, northwest to a certain extent. So a lot of people in Toronto. You're right, yep. Pierre. It was, it was a great signal. And it was amazing. So, Jimmy, I'd be hearing all these things. I'd be like, this guy's really good. And he oh, used to have you. a color man who was a great player for Hartford, Andre Lacroix who worked with Chuck early on, right, Chuck? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I, I would hear all these things, Jimmy. I'd be like, wow, these guys are good together. That's and, awesome. then the whaler, and then the whaler started to actually get good. Yep. And Chuck, you were there when Ron Francis was a kid. You were there when Joel Quenville was just coming of age. 
You were there when Dave Tippett was there. Ray Ferraro was there. You yeah. saw some iconic young Whaler players, Christopher Pronger, uh, you know, Jeff Sanderson. You saw some pretty young, good players. I wanted to ask you about Ron Francis. I had the privilege of coaching him. I was part of the trade that brought him from Hartford to Pittsburgh. So I know him in a certain way. I think you probably knew him in a different way. Yeah, I knew him as, uh, as you say, that uh, curly black haired kid. In fact, I have a picture on my wall here in my room of uh, Ronnie actually doing color with me for a game in his rookie season because he got hit in the eye with a deflected shot against the Calgary Flames. And as Ronnie's luck would have it, the puck went in the net and he was uh, awarded the goal against Calgary. And, uh, and then he had, uh, you know, he thought he had lost his eye. And this is like uh, halfway into his rookie season. He was brought up in November of 81, and this was early 82. And so now, um, got to know him. On a, I said, Ronnie, I know you're only 18. You're turning 19 in, in March. Come on and do color. And he was so uh, uh, so mature. I mean, Pierre, Jimmy, uh, the maturity of this young man as an 18 and 19-year-old kid um, and of course, now uh, what he's done uh, in hockey uh, in his Hall of Fame career, and now uh, with the Kraken as their general manager, and he'll build that team. I think uh, it was spectacular. And, and you're right, Pierre. I did get to, to know him on a personal level because once a year we would drive up to see my mom and dad and my wife's mom and dad up in Michigan in the summer, and we would make a drive up to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, just to go to Ronnie's family because his father, the late Ron Francis Sr., and Loretta, his mother, were just terrific people. Uh, you know, uh, Francis was a Frenchman, but uh, Loretta was uh, an Italian, and she could cook. <laughs> and uh, we had wonderful, wonderful meals with them. We played street hockey. Little kids played street hockey with Ron and Ricky, oh, wow. uh, Ronnie's brother. And, and and so, but so that's the level we got to meet him at, and and uh, and we're still very very good friends today. We st I still text him, you know. I I kind of live surreptitiously between uh, a lot of these different guys that Pierre's talking about because they're all in the league. I, I was so sorry that Dean Evison lost his job in Minnesota because he was part of that group that Pierre's talking about uh, mm -hmm. those mid '80s Whalers that did so well. And like you said, Joel, hopefully he comes back into the fold someday as a coach, a very good coach. Um, you know, great people. You mentioned Dave Tippett. I mean, so, so many of these guys that went on to coach in the National Hockey League. I mean, we had a special group of guys, but uh, probably none more special than Ronnie. Well, Jimmy, everybody's got their own feeling for when they get to the top of the mountain in the NHL. And the top of the mountain in the NHL is winning the Stanley Cup. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've been – blessed and fortunate enough to have called 16 of them, but also to have participated in winning two of them. And it really, I think they're all different, even though everybody say, well, it'll be the same. And no, they're all different in a certain way. Yeah. Chuck, what was your top of the mountain moment in 2006 after your amazing call of the Whaler or the Hurricanes winning the cup? Well, I, I think it had to be when Justin Williams scored that solidifying goal to make it three to one, the empty netter. Uh, because a lot of people were nervous, Pierre. You got to realize, I mean, there were a couple of interesting things about that game seven. And a lot of people thought, well, maybe it shouldn't go to a game seven. I mean, after all, the Edmonton Oilers were eighth in the Western Conference and the Hurricanes were second to Ottawa in the regular season in the East. But that doesn't mean anything, as Pierre knows from coaching all these yeah. years. 
you it doesn't matter what you do for the first six months of the season, the first 82 games. You better be ready for intense game number one in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Mm -hmm. And so, and I, you know, teams like San Jose found that out uh, when they played Edmonton and right down the list. And uh, I think things fell into place for the uh, Hurricanes all along. I mean, you look at the first series. They lost their first two games against Montreal at home That's and then right. ended up proceeding yeah. to win the next four. They changed the That's goalie. Right. It was Marty Gerber, and they switched over to Cam Ward. That's yep. right. Exactly true. And uh, and then Marty, you know, you speak about Gerber, he won a big game in Buffalo in the Eastern Conference Final, cool. shutting them out 3 nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. when uh, the Hurricanes' backs were against the wall in that series. But, boy, uh, the, the, the call that I uh, – and the, uh, the moment that was exhilarating for me and for the fans was when Justin Williams finally broke the ice and scored in the empty net uh, in Game 7 with 30 seconds to go or so. And I think I said something like the Hurricanes are going to win the Stanley Cup in all probability, <laughs> I qualified a little bit. Wait a second. Didn't Aaron Ward put the puck over the glass and you had to kill off a penalty late in the game? Late in the game, exactly. Yep. And speaking of Aaron Ward, the same Aaron Ward who actually scored one of the two uh, uh, goals before the empty netter. He and Frothichek Kaberla scored. I mean, how many times are you going to have two defensemen be your only goal scorers in a game seven like that? Yeah. Jimmy, I just want Chuck to say one name, and then we'll keep moving with the interview. Okay. There was a really good player for the Edmonton Oilers that year out of Providence College. His first name started with an F. His last name started with a P. Can you say oh, that name? Sure. Fernando Pisani. <laughs> Fernando <laughs> Pisani. I love that's one of my favorite any names. Any announcer. I'm telling you, Jimmy, I was <laughs> – I would break down the tapes before JD and Doc and I oh, would yeah. do the games. And one time I said to one of the guys, get me the radio call. I want to hear how he, because I know Chuck's a stickler. Trust me, we used to go to the old Winnipeg Arena, Chuck and I. We'd always be there a couple days early with the team because we were flying commercial. And we'd sit there. And in the old Winnipeg Arena, there was a portrait, an oil painting of the Queen. Of right. England. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. Yeah. And Chuck and I would be there and he'd be giving me all the intel of all, how do you say this guy's name and that guy's name? And he had it all before any of these guides came out. Chuck Caton was the guide. So this, so is before they, how, this is before they did the thing. Cause I, you know, we get the game notes and they'll do that now for like the last, I don't know, 20 years. So well, this there's is the guy that invented it right there. Charles. Well, I have to also Pierre and a good, and a guy that uh, I know you enjoyed working with for many years, Doc Emmerich. And I actually went to the PR director's meetings at the uh, uh, draft one year. This is way back in the late 80s now. Yep. And he and I, as part of the Broadcasters Association, uh, and one of the things that we wanted to do was create the pronunciation guide. And Doc is a guy that really gets a lot of credit for me because what we what the way we did it was we had each broadcaster who was willing at training camp to go to his own players. And there were a lot of guys that wouldn't do it or didn't do it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so Doc had to pick up the slack, as I did, with some of the teams that didn't cooperate so that we could get the exact pronunciations. Now, I know the league has taken that over since Doc's retired, but it was actually Doc Emmerich who started it with me. And we also did one other thing, um, and that was standardizing the press notes what we have today. Everybody's got standardized notes now. Yeah. You never used to have that until I got to give Doc a lot of credit for that because we lobbied for that. For a long time and they finally did it but that pronunciation guide um was very valuable i think because really well. uh, you know a lot of people are mispronouncing names yeah, I mean, you had one guy jimmy in boston 
everybody used to call him Sergei Samsonov all the time. And I and, and when he came to our team, I said, Sergei, I've been calling you Samsonov all these years. He says, well, you've been pronouncing it right. Well, I said, well, why didn't you correct? And I'm not going to yeah. name names. Some of your broadcasters in Boston or in Edmonton even. Yeah. Like, uh, with Rod Phillips back then when he did play against us uh, as an oiler in that series in 06. Why don't you? Oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, and that's yeah. what you get for the players' attitudes when you get out of that topic, right, Pierre? I, I mean, uh, the, play, the players have bigger fish to fry than to worry what they call, <laughs> what broadcasters call them, since they're not listening or watching the games anyway. Yeah. What did the cup feel like to you, Chuck, when you had it? What did it feel like in your hands? Did you believe it weighed 35 pounds? No, I didn't. Uh, in fact, uh, I wish I had lost 35 pounds. Like <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it was it, that was in itself a, a real surrealistic. Uh, and first of all, again, I know he's out in Vancouver. He may or may not see this uh, this podcast. I hope he does. But Jimmy Rutherford, as our general manager, said, you are getting the cup. And we got the cup uh in september of the next season the training camp the next year I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that because we had it for about a day and a half we took it around town my three kids came into town with their girlfriends and wives at the time and uh, uh it was terrific and i think the biggest thrill came for my wife mary who ended up sleeping with the cup in the room See? i'm outside the cup's yeah. in there with her and she uh she enjoyed it and uh, it's a uh, it's uh it was amazing. And again, it was unbelievable because I'm not into superstitions uh, at all, but um, I can see why players don't want to touch the cup or touch the maybe the Prince of Wales trophy or whatever before they win something. But uh, it was incredible. And what, what's really incredible, Pierre, Jimmy, are the people that we invited to various parties we had for it in that day and a half. They can't believe the number of names. They can't believe how all of these it. names are on there. How do they do this? And then, you know, and and that's what makes the cup so special, I believe. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, Kitty and I have one thing in common. We're really good friends with you. That's Chuck's <laughs> wife's name, uh, uh -huh. Kitty. And uh the other thing, Chuck, we've both slept with the Stanley Cup. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you did. And we had uh, <laughs> Billy Wellman from the league. Uh, I mean, Billy was in the other room and finally uh and I see that's another thing that people probably I don't know if you've discussed this on the podcast before, but uh, that somebody from the Hall of Fame has to if you're going to keep the cup overnight, which they allowed us to do mm -hmm. uh, until we handed it off to the late Dave Olson, who was the operations manager of the PNC Arena. He got it the next day after us. Um you got to have the uh, guy there. So you can either, he either takes it back to his hotel or you invite him to your house. And we had an extra bedroom at the time. So Billy actually slept at our house overnight so he could be in close proximity to the cup. Jimmy, you know why that rule started? The no. Pittsburgh Penguins. Oh, we <laughs> broke the cup. We did. We did. Phil Bork yeah, dove they, off a waterfall in Mario Lemieux's backyard and it broke the cup. Yeah. And after that, they made sure there was always somebody there oh, yeah. minding the cup. Well, I, I mean, I've got to tap on Pierre's knowledge about that, too, because what was the first year that they actually even allowed team members and staff to even have a day with the you cup? You know what? I, I don't know, Chuck. Scotty Bowman would be better than anybody in terms of dealing yeah. with that because he won the cup so many darn times, 14. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Jimmy, before I turn it over to you, I just – yeah, this is really important. And, Chuck, we've had so much fun together in our lives. 
when we sat in Toronto almost three weeks ago in the lobby mm -hmm. before the Hall of Fame induction and then afterwards with William Scott Bowman, have you ever, I mean, in all our years, we've done a lot of cool stuff. That was amazing, don't you think? That oh, absolutely so. Night, that was unbelievable. Oh, it, it was. And uh, you know who I was happy for? And you met him for the first time in a while is my friend uh, Henry Leon. We call him Tag. He's a yes. golf pro in Viners. Yes. Uh, he accompanied me on that trip. And he was like a kid in a candy store. He was a Division three goaltender uh, in Vermont uh, growing up in Rutland. Uh, and and he, uh, uh, he played at Norwich State. Uh, university and right. and he was just sitting there listening to all of you uh, talk about old stories. Uh, we shared a dinner with Scotty the day before we saw Pierre, but just to sit with him, you're absolutely right, Pierre. I mean, this man is 90 years young, with the emphasis on young. Scotty Bowman is an, an incredible uh, human being. I think what keeps him young is uh, talking hockey with people like Pierre. Uh, like myself and like others, uh, he's on the phone probably longer than he does anything else in the day because he's just talking hockey all the time. I think it keeps him young. Um, yeah. He calls our house once in a while, but he doesn't get a hold of me. He talks politics with my wife. So, uh, you know, they, they love to do that. I mean, he's a very well-rounded individual and a guy who's always inquisitive. And as Pierre can tell you from having worked with him, he knows the answer to every question he asks you. So you better not uh, yeah. go on to pull a, pull a, pull a, yeah, you can't pull his leg. You can't say, yeah. well, uh, I know it's this when he can tell you, no, isn't it this? And then you say, yeah, he's right. You know? <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, just one more quick one. Yeah. I think, I think the best road trip, the Hartford Whalers slash Carolina hurricanes had in 1994 all time. And I'm not sure they've broken it yet. Chuck, you would know better than I, we went to Quebec one. We lost big time in Montreal. I got really mad at the team. We skated before we flew to Winnipeg in the morning. We won in Winnipeg, lost in overtime in Calgary. Then we had a couple days off in Vancouver, and we won against Vancouver. And after the game, I told Chuck and Johnny Forslund, you guys, we got an extra day in Vancouver before we go to Edmonton and play at the end of the trip. And we won in Edmonton, by the way. Glenn Saylor was coaching the Oilers, and Pat Quinn was coaching Vancouver. I'm just showing Pierre Page was coaching uh, Quebec. Uh, he was in Quebec at the time. That's right, he was. Dave King was coaching Calgary. Anyways, yeah. I said to Chuck after the game, Chuck, you're my guest tonight, you and Johnny. We spent a ton. It was an afternoon game in Vancouver, too. We went to a place called Joe Forte's. Chuck, do you remember that afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> well... I, I didn't kill all the brain cells. At least, uh, <laughs> we, ate, we ate so many oysters that day, Jimmy. I'm telling you right now, it was it was an amazing, amazing. It's one of those all time stories you just remember. And I just every time I've walked by that neighborhood over all the years, especially in the 2010 Olympic year, I was in Vancouver so much. I always think about Chuck and Johnny Forza. I'm you. not sure that that was one of my greatest memories was that afternoon after we yeah. beat Vancouver in Vancouver. It was spectacular. It's a wonderful road trip. I mean, it's the kind of trip that uh, I know the Hurricanes are on right now. I mean, at, at this taping, they're actually in Winnipeg right now go. and going west. So, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, this is this is the thing that I miss the most. I mean, I know I've been gone for five years, but I still miss the people. Uh, I miss people, Jimmy, like Pierre, uh, people that I, I mean, broadcasters that I've uh, gotten to know over the years and it's very sad at the same time to see the rick generettes of the world 
uh, leave us too soon and uh, guys like Bob Miller retiring. And, uh, you know, those those individuals were very special to me. And But uh, there's also guys, you know, we talk about uh, young 90-year-olds. You, you just mentioned him earlier, Pierre, Dick Irvin. Uh, a terrific, terrific guy with that yeah. uh, such a distinctive voice. And he, I mean, he's a lot like Scotty. Hockey keeps him uh, really uh, young as well. He just had a hip replacement, Jimmy. He still wants to play golf. And hey, well, that's true. Dick, Dick could golf. Like, he was a heck of a player. He really yeah, was. He's um, right. One, one, one more thing, Jimmy. See the man sitting over there, Chuck Caton? He doesn't tell you all the time. He, he hangs out in Pinehurst. He hangs out in Pinehurst. He's a even though he hasn't broadcast in five years, I still think he could really do a good job broadcasting, but I know his golf game's a ton better because I used to kick his derriere. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I've, I've probably shaved one stroke off for every year I haven't worked, so that means <laughs> still a 20. <laughs> That's great. Oh. Yeah, it is true. And you guys could both answer this, too. I mean, you just made a great point, Chuck. A lot of times when I talk to players uh, that are retired, and actually recently to Patrice Bergeron, that is exactly what they say. I said, what do you miss most about the game? He's like, I don't – I don't know. I don't miss the game that much. I just miss being around the guys and, and just the camaraderie. And, and you know, that's the same that goes to broadcasters as well, I imagine. Oh, it absolutely is. And, you know, I just mentioned him a few minutes ago, uh, Nate Greenberg, who was the fine yeah. director of communications with the Boston Bruins for many, many years. Uh, uh, he, uh, you know, through him, uh, I, I've met so many great people. Um and, and he did the job the right way. I mean, that's another one of those. I'll throw a Danny Gallivan word at you. It's an evanescent art, the art of being a PR director today. You don't see it very often anymore where they take you in and they make you feel, even though you're the visitor, you're special. He'll do anything for you. The Bill Robertsons that were, was in Minnesota and Anaheim, he was another one. Dick Dillman, the late Dick Dillman in Minnesota with the, the North Stars. I mean, I could go down the list of old-time Alex Gilchrist, Alex Gilchrist out in Anaheim, tremendous, tremendous. Absolutely, guy. he's cut from that same cloth. He used tremendous to work for Billy out yeah, there, yeah. so yeah. it's the same. And they, and you're right, and and I don't know if we're losing that or not, but uh, I, I just think that uh, uh, it's not the same. I mean, for the you know, so again, as Patrice probably told you, Jimmy, I mean, he doesn't miss a lot of different things about it, but he does miss the people. And for broadcasters. That includes PR people and other people that help them along the way to help do their job. Oh, yeah. I was lucky enough, uh, you know, when I was coming up the ranks, when I got into this business, guys, and Pierre knows this, uh, Russ Conway took me under his wing. And oh, man, Russ, fantastic. What yeah. a tweet street he was, you know, and just – and you, you guys were talking about your friend there, uh, Chuck, uh, at the Hall of Fame a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. I just remember – the first time Russ invited me out for a couple drinks after a game, he took me across to the fours. Across the street on Chuck, we've never been there before. What is yeah, it? Never been to the fours, I imagine. And, and it's 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 uh, who was it? it? Was it was him? It was Chief. Um, I think uh, the old Dave Shea. I don't know if you guys remember oh, him. Yeah. Oh sure, absolutely. Yeah, Dave Shea was there, and then a couple other old timers. Oh, and, and Bobby Orr. Can't leave of him course. out. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm the fly on the wall, and I'm just loving it. I'm absorbing all this, and I think it was uh, Russ looks at me and goes, Jimmy, you going to say anything? I said, nope. You guys just keep going. I, this, is, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I know. I talk, to, I talk to number four quite often, and uh, we uh, share a lot of the same ideas of uh, 
the game. And I think, you know, Pierre, I, I heard your talk about the changes of the game before I got on. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, that two-line pass, I mean, taking the red line out was, I believe, one of the worst things that could have been done. I mean, it speeds the game up, but now it makes it a different game. But, and I know he shares that opinion. He probably shares it a lot with uh, a lot of people, uh, including the commissioner from time to time when he sees them. But yeah. uh, I don't think things are going to change. But you're right. I mean, just those stories. I mean, just to hear those. I mean, Johnny Busick. Oh. I mean, he's finally, and I saw him on the 100th anniversary, and I, I yeah. just was devastated to see the trouble he's having walking now. And uh, he's not, but what a guy. Well, and there's another guy that well, he'd pull two tickets out of, you need two tickets for tonight's game. Here, here they are. Uh, you know, we had a lot of guys like that. There was a guy named Don Murphy who had Coke bottle glasses. He was the uh, PR director of the Chicago Blackhawks for years, and he was the same yeah. way. You'd walk in once a year. The Hartford Whalers are playing the Blackhawks. Hey, kid, you need a couple of tickets for the game? You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you don't see that today. You know, yeah. they'd have yeah. to e-ticket you now. I mean, okay, do you have your phone? Okay, we'll send you two tickets over the – and then you got to transfer them over out of the freaking Google wallet or whatever that is, you know. Guys, I, I, I told some whale, old-time Whalers fans to watch this. So, you know, for them, I want to ask you, just talk about what – it was the culture around the Whalers in Hartford and, and, and how great it was to be a part of that, you know, and, and really putting that city, that area. Cause I mean, look at all the good hockey players now that are coming out of Connecticut. What was that like being a part of the Whalers organization? I'll, I'll start with you, Chuck. Well, it was real special, Jimmy, because uh, number one, we were a big, small town. We were a town where the players mm -hmm. were very community oriented and the team did a lot of things uh, in the community to cement the relationships that still exist today. I mean, you've got people like Joel Quenville who married a local girl and goes back to Connecticut every year. Ronnie Francis married a girl from Connecticut. Uh, you have other people that have so many uh, former uh, uh, neighbors and friends that they come and visit all the time. Yeah. And I think it's manifested greatly by the Hartford Yard Goats, the double-A baseball team mm -hmm. uh, in Connecticut, that once mm -hmm. a year, the second week in July, they invite players from all the eras to come back and be part of a Whalers weekend. And it's wonderful. And, we're the people, and you can't believe how many people attend this. Now, I don't know if the shelf life is going to last more than seven or eight years because – all of those people that say they used to listen to me are now 50 years old, which how do you think that makes me? But, and, and then I've watched those players more, more importantly. And I, and then that's kept the memory and the culture alive. I mean, if there's any city that you could wish would have an NHL team again, it would be Hartford. And I think it would be greatly supported, but again, economics of the game, the geography, those are the things that really drove it out, unfortunately. And, uh, but it's a special place and every year that I go back for that Yard Goats Whalers weekend, I'm reminded again of the impact that this team had on the community and the love affair it had. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. You know, Jimmy, when I was there, we were trying to rebuild the situation. It had right. really fallen into disrepair. Um, so a lot of hard decisions had to be made. And one of my guiding principles through this whole thing was Chuck Caton. Chuck really helped me a lot. And one of the things we started to do – Whenever we would play the Islanders and whenever we would play the Rangers and whenever we would play New Jersey, we'd always take buses to those games. We wouldn't fly. Mm. And I would try to find a rink in Connecticut where we could practice. And we had just acquired Teddy Drury from Calgary. 
And uh, I remember we practiced in a couple rinks where he had grown up and kids would come from schools. And Chuck, it was all Chuck's ideas. He would give me these ideas. But we would do that. And, and to their credit, the players never – Chuck, I don't remember one player complaining when we used no. to do that. And no. we weren't just trying to rebuild the infrastructure of the team, Jimmy. We were trying to rebuild the relationship with the community. Yeah. And I think eventually, as Chuck said – it did get rebuilt, but the problem was there was a lot of heavy-duty damage that had been done, and thus new ownership came in, and then, you know, they decided to move to Carolina. But uh, I enjoyed my years there. I know one of the best parts about it was getting to be uh, a lifelong friend of Charles Caton. Thank you. Proud Mason Blue graduate, by the way, Jimmy. Uh-huh. But here's where it gets a little squirrely for Chuck. He's proud maize and blue, but I think his best broadcasting days were at the University of Wisconsin when the great Badger Bob Johnson was there. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, from a success standpoint, from an enthusiasm standpoint, I mean, we start, when I started doing Michigan hockey in 1970, uh, I, we played in a little 1,500-seat arena called the Michigan Coliseum, but uh, it got converted into a squash and tennis facility after we moved to Yost Ice Arena in 1973. So, it, it, and, and even that arena right now uh, is uh, is not the greatest, although they renovated it a couple of times. It used to be where Cassie Russell played basketball, for crying out loud, years ago. But, uh, but the Michigan program was not what Wisconsin's program uh, was under Bob Johnson. And the ironic thing is the first year I ended up going to Wisconsin, Bob wasn't our coach because he coached the U.S. Olympic team in 1976. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't get to know him until the next year. But, boy, it was it was terrific. He was uh, another guy that uh, I cherished getting to know very well. And, of course, his sons, Mark and Peter, and the rest of their families and everything, uh, uh, another guy. And he was prophetic. I mean, in 1986, he almost hit the nail on the head. Uh, I'm going to interrupt him, but it was Calgary versus Hartford. And in 1986, Badger used to tell me this story all the time when I worked for yep. him. They were the two best teams in the league. Wow. Well, that's right. They were no. the two, at that time of the year, they were the two best teams in the league. So this is a preview to the Stanley Cup final. He, you got that right. And, we played again, and he told me that in January <laughs> after we beat them 9-1 to one in wow. Calgary in January. So you know what Badger game with his uh, late great wife Martha. Now we go out and Badger Bob's telling me, "Don't worry, we got two great teams." And everybody was calling for his head on their ninth straight loss. But Cliff Fletcher stayed right with him as the general manager. The rest is history. They they turned it right around. They go and they end up playing the Montreal Canadiens, whom we should have beaten yep. in '86, but lost in Game Seven in that overtime when uh, Claude Lemieux scored. Claude Lemieux. Yeah, so, Jimmy. Just to, so Chuck talks about the nine goal win by Hartford in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Bob Johnson told me about his press conference afterwards. You could Google it. I'm sure it's still there. He said all he talked about was the positive things the team did. Our power play was good. Our forecheck was good. There are a couple right. other things that were really good that I like. So we're going in the right direction. Everybody's like, this guy must be going up. There's something wrong with him. But that was him. You never, you never had a bad day. What was his famous phrase? It's a yeah, great, it's a great day, day for hockey. And you know what? He's the one that said that, and it's all over the hockey world now. Yeah, Bob Johnson said that. Yeah. Absolutely true. And the, all, and the only other thing for, like you say, Jimmy, if Whaler fans are watching this, they'll completely remember that in the only time in franchise history, never mind just Whaler history, 
No Hurricanes have done this. Double hat tricks in that game. Dean Evison had one. Kevin Deneen had one. Wow. That's a great one win. That's yeah. some great I'm happy birthday, by the way. Well, you know, and I used to... I used to listen to you. Uh, I went to UMass Amherst, and so we, we were out at UMass. You can pick up the games easy there. We used to drive right down 91 to go to the games, and those Bruins-Whalers games back in the day, it was like just split right down the middle in the Civic Center. It was great. It was it was like being at a college game. You know, it was it was just so much fun, and I, I, I miss that tremendously. Yeah, well, don't let Mike Milbury hear this, but that 86 team – Ignited with a left hand of Kevin Deneen into the jaw of Mike Milburn in one of those games. I'll never forget the uh, Whalers won that game, I think, ten to two. And at the end of the game, Pierre will know where P where the bus is on the P three level, the visiting bus. Well, there was a car blocking. You'd have to go up a ramp to get on I eighty four out of the building. That's right. Yeah. And there was a car parked. Blocking the bus. O'Reilly told the team, get showered as fast as you can, get on that freaking bus right now. He was so hot. He was coaching the team then. He goes out, and there's a car blocking the bus from leaving. He took a tire iron and broke the guy's windshield <laughs> to try to get into the car to move it. You know, I never saw anything like that in my life. No. And I, I don't know if he got sued or what ended up coming up. But that's, how, that's how Taz was. You know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think Nate Greenberg took care of that one, Chuck. Too. He probably did, <laughs> like he did all the time for all those guys. And that was why he was it over. Yeah. Good stuff, wow. Charles. Awesome. We cannot thank you enough for taking the time, Chuck. You, you're just awesome. You're just a fountain of information. You are, in my opinion, one of the top five broadcasters in the history of the sport. Um, it was an amazing privilege to work with you, to do interviews with you on an everyday basis. But to be a lifelong friend is an amazing uh, privilege to me. Thank you so much, Chuck. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Jimmy. A wonderful show, and I enjoy your uh, the eye test, and I hope that uh, uh, people probably get blindfolded when they see my face on this. So you're a good-looking lad. Don't worry. All right. We appreciate you joining us. That's Chuck Caden. He's Pierre McGuire. I'm Jimmy Murphy. This has been another edition of the eye test. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the eye test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.